Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. Welcome, welcome to Wiggins America. I uh, am foregoing any guests for this show. Normally, we at least have one guest to come and explain whatever kind of the news of the week would be, which the biggest news of this week is probably the State of the Union. But we're going to take the first two segments here. Oh, and by the way, Old Roy and Trisha will be here at various points throughout the show. I'm not saying it's just me monologuing. But uh, no official guests because I wanted to take the first two segments and then obviously we go past that with other things that we have planned to talk about some local news that is making national news. And it's multiple stories all linked together. And they're not necessarily linked in the news, but I've pulled all of them and you're going to see how they're linked So welcome in. Here we go. The first one is the state of Missouri is taking things a step further. I'm reading here from a story that is uh, going national. Then Florida's controversial don't say gay law, which is just a moniker. It, It does not mean that at all, as you probably know. But it's saying that Missouri is going further than Florida's law. A Senate bill proposed in the Missouri legislature would forbid conversations about sexual identity and LGBTQ and sex issues in K through 12 public schools unless the teacher or staff member is a licensed mental health professional and has parental permission. By contrast, Florida's law forbids lessons in kindergarten through third grade on sexual orientation, gender identity, and other topics judged inappropriate for children their age. The arguments for these things are absurd and ridiculous. And unfortunately, now we're in a position that we have to legislate these things to protect kids. You would hope that it would be so obvious that you don't bring up your sex life or your sexual preferences with kids, even K through 12. I mean, I would definitely go beyond K through third grade, K through 12. Just don't bring it up. What's the point? I mean, if they ask you about it, then that's one thing. They ask you about the way you behave or something. You Really, the correct answer is still, you know what? I don't really want to get into that part of my personal life. That's not for the classroom. Um, if you did that in any other setting, you would be called names like groomer or pedophile for bringing up sex with children. But for some reason in schools, publicly funded by your tax dollars, it's okay until now. I want to get to the personal side of this woman's story in the next segment. But before we do, I want to talk about this woman who, and this is a local story, but it really is national. I'm talking national, national. It's making Fox News. It's all over the internet. Uh, Of course, right-wingers are sharing it. Left-wingers are not. But this comes from the Washington University Transgender Center. Hear my words here. The Washington University, you know WashU, Transgender Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital. There is a transgender center at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Did you even know that? I didn't know that. 
And this is a employee there who has basically put her career on the line. And I would say beyond that, she, she has ended her career there for sure by going public with this. Now, I want to talk about who she is and why she's doing this in the next segment, which I think is very, very um, interesting for a variety of reasons. But I want to share the facts first. She says, soon after my arrival at the transgender center, I was struck by a lack of formal protocols for treatment. The center's physicians' co-directors were essentially the sole authority. At first, the patient population was tipped toward what used to be the, quote, traditional instance of a child with gender dysphoria, a boy, quite often young, who wanted to present as, who wanted to be a girl. Until about 2015, she says, a very small number of these boys comprised the population of pediatric gender dysphoria cases. Then, something after 2015 happened... Across the Western world, she says, there began to be a dramatic increase of a new population, teenage girls, many with no previous history of gender distress, suddenly declared they were transgender and demanded immediate treatment with testosterone. I saw this at the center. One of my jobs was to intake for new patients and their families. When I started, there were probably 10 such calls a month. When I left, there were 50 and about 70% of the new patients were girls. Sometimes clusters of girls arrive from the same high school. This concerned me, but I didn't feel I was in a position to sound the alarm back then. There was a team of about eight of us, and only one other person ever brought up the kind of questions I had. Anyone who raised doubts ran the risk of being called a transphobe. So you understand the culture that exists in these places. You can't ask questions. You, and, and this is other people's lives that are on the line here. Kids. Um, she says the girls who came to us had many comorbidities, depression, anxiety, ADHD, eating disorders, obesity. Many were diagnosed with autism or had autism like symptoms. A report last year from the British pediatric transgender center found that about one third of all patients referred there were on the spectrum. Frequently our patients declared that they had disorders that no one believed they had. We had patients who said they had Tourette's, but they didn't. They had tic disorders, but they didn't. They had multiple personalities, but they didn't. The doctors privately recognized these false self-diagnoses as a manifestation of social contagion. They even acknowledged that suicide has an element of social contagion. But when I said the clusters of girls streaming into our service looked as if their gender issues might be a manifestation of social contagion, the doctors said, nope. Gender identity is off the table. So th they, they could have social pressure is what she's saying on all these other issues. But when it came to that one issue, gender dysphoria or wanting to change your gender using medicine, in their case, the doctors shut down the conversation and said, let them do what they want. I saw somebody said recently, if a kid came to you or a person really at all, but we, we're talking about kids here. That's what's so discouraging and disheartening. If a person came to you and said, hey, doc, I would like you to remove my finger. Well, why? Well, because I, I identify as a nine finger person now. Well, you would be viewed as crazy. But if you go in, you say, doctor, I want you to remove my genitals. You're viewed as fine. That's all. That's, I just, I'm, I'm affirming the way you feel. That's a great comparison. She goes on to say <clears throat> that many encounters with patients emphasized to me uh, 
how little these young people understood the profound impacts changing gender would have on their bodies and minds. And the people who are supposed to be able to tell them this, the doctors, she says, the center downplayed the negative consequences and emphasized the need for transition, emphasized the need for transition. As the center's website said, and once again, I'm talking about a local place here. This is the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital. The center's website says, left untreated, gender dysphoria has any number of consequences from self-harm to suicide. But when you take away the gender dysphoria by allowing a child to be who he or she is, we're noticing that goes away. I want to go into, in the next segment, how that is so far from the truth according to what this woman experienced there and why she's basically whistleblowing now and who she is because she's being very courageous in doing this. Anytime somebody puts something on the line, that's when you know they're being real. They've got a backbone and they're they're putting it out there. <clears throat> I don't know what she has to gain from this either. So you could you can risk something, but if the gain, potential gain is higher, like if you're a Democrat or Republican politician and you decide, you know what, I'm going to start criticizing my own party. You definitely risk something. But a lot of times the gain is higher because the other side will embrace you and pay you more or your name will be out there more by doing that. In this case, there is really no gain for her doing this, but there's a lot of risk. So it's an important story, and I want to talk about who she is. That's coming up right after this break on Wiggins America. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. We're back, Wiggins America. We're talking about this story about a woman right here in St. Louis who worked, worked, because she's not there anymore, at the Washington University School of Medicine Division of Infectious Diseases with teens and young adults who were HIV positive. And then um, in 2018, she had been working there for a while. In 2018, she moved over to be a case manager at the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Yes, there is, apparently, I didn't know this, a transgender center at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Now, I said before, I'm going to talk about who she is because I think that uh, it matters just in the sense that it matters what people's motivations are. Now, if somebody were coming out and this and they, they were going to sign a book deal, you'd go, well, it doesn't mean what you're saying is not true. It just means that you had something to gain here. And it doesn't make it wrong. It just means that you have to analyze those things and be skeptical of them. She doesn't have anything to gain, it seems, from doing this. She has everything to lose, and I do believe she is not working there anymore, probably because she was asking questions. But here's her story. She says, I'm a 42-year-old St. Louis native, a queer woman, and and I'm politically to the left of Bernie Sanders. My worldview has deeply shaped my career. I've spent my professional life providing counseling to vulnerable populations, children in foster care, sexual minorities, the poor. And then she goes into a story that I just gave you about her her career uh, that she was then working since 2018 at the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital. 
which was established apparently just in 2017. The center's working assumption was that the earlier you treat kids with gender dysphoria, the more anguish you can prevent later on. This premise was shared by the center's doctors and therapists. Given their expertise, I assumed that abundant evidence backed this consensus. During the four years I worked at the clinic as a case manager, I was responsible for patient intake and oversight. Around a thousand distressed young people came through our doors. A thousand kids came to see them at the transgender center. Now, how do you think they advised them? It says the majority of them received hormone prescriptions that can have life-altering consequences, including permanent sterility. Makes them sterile. As kids, they're making these decisions. I left the clinic in November of last year because I could no longer participate in what was happening. By the time I departed, I was certain that the way the American medical system is treating these patients is the opposite of the promise we make to do no harm. Instead, we are permanently harming the vulnerable patients in our care. Today, I'm speaking out. I'm doing so knowing how toxic the public conversation is around this highly contentious issue and the ways that my testimony might be misused. I am doing so knowing that I am putting myself at serious personal and professional risk. Almost everyone in my life advised me to keep my head down, but I cannot in good conscience do so because what is happening to scores of children is far more important than my comfort and what is happening to them is morally and medically appalling. There are several stories within this with headlines like, I want my breasts back because I was the main intake person. I had the broadest perspective on our existing and prospective patients in 2019. A new group of people appeared on my radar. D-transitioners, D-sisters, is there, as they're all often called, choose not to go through with a transition. D-transitioners are transgender people who decide to return to their birth gender. The one colleague with whom I was able to share my concerns agreed with me that we should be tracking desistance and detransition. We thought the doctors would want to collect and understand this data in order to figure out what they had missed, but we were wrong. One doctor wondered aloud why he would spend time on someone who was no longer his patient, but we created a document anyway, and it was called the red flag list. It was an Excel spreadsheet that tracked the kind of patients that kept my colleague and me up at night. One of the saddest cases of detransition I witnessed was a teenage girl who, like so many of our patients, came from an unstable family, was in an uncertain living situation, had a history of drug use. The overwhelming majority of our patients are white, but this girl was black. She was put on hormones at the center when she was around 16. And when she was 18, she went in for a double mastectomy, known as top surgery. Three months later, she called the surgeon's office to say she was going back to her birth name and that her pronouns were she and her. Heartbreakingly, she told the nurse, I want my breasts back. The surgeon's office contacted our office because they didn't know what to say to this girl. My colleague and I said that we would reach out. It took us a while to track her down. And when we did, we made sure that she was in decent mental health and she was not actively suicidal and that she was not using substances. And the last I heard, she was pregnant. Of course, I'll never be able to breastfeed. She'll never be able to breastfeed her child. There are story after story like this that they kept track of on this red flag list because nobody else was willing to do it. They didn't care. They just wanted to transition kids. <clears throat> they didn't care when their mental health situation required that they detransition. 
Why is that? It seems as if this is, in their words, all about helping kids where they're at and doing what they feel like they should be doing. I I mentioned this in the promo for Wiggins America this week, and I'll end this segment with this. Completely different story, and this one's not local. It says, The Church of England will look to you into the use of gender-neutral terms to refer now to God in prayers. The issue reflects a glowing, growing global awareness about the assumed usage of pronouns causing offense or upset to those who do not identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. This is the Church of England. The official Church of England is saying that they're looking into referring to God in gender-neutral terms. They're going to change God's pronouns because they're, I don't know, they're offending somebody. I don't know. Apparently, according to their own rules, you would have to be offending God to do that because God would then determine how he felt. (laughs) But I mean, it's it's, it's so ridiculous, but that's why I bring it up. Uh, We we don't have a compass anymore. We used to be a Judeo-Christian ethic in this country. We used to have a Judeo-Christian ethic. And regardless of what the common ethic is, it determines the fate of the nation. It determines the direction of all laws. It determines everything. You can determine a whole lot about somebody's politics just by knowing what they believe about the world, or worldview, or about God. And we have completely abandoned anything resembling God. In fact, so many of these things are just an open affront. They're actually not even, they don't really care. They just want to go against what has been the traditional value of the country. And that's why I always say it's a spiritual battle. These are spiritual battles and they manifest in these ways and it's sad to watch, but this is, this is the return you get. You know, you reap what you sow and we have for a long time been sowing as a nation, not necessarily individually, but we've been sowing nothing. I mean, we've been sowing, do what you want, do what makes you feel good. Well, we don't actually know what makes us feel good. That's the problem. I wanted to bring that story up because I think it's important. It is local. It is making national headlines. And you'll probably hear about it after this. But I wanted you to hear it here first to get a little bit more full interpretation of the story. There's more than that. So you can go read it for yourself. But uh, that's that's just tip of the iceberg stuff. I do want to get to more than just that story, which we will do next here on Wiggins America. All right, old Roy in studio. Thank you for coming in as usual. You're welcome. <laughs> you, you looked at me like you were waiting for the other shoe I'm to trying drop. To ke- I'm trying to come up with a catchphrase. <laughs> like, I think I'm at that you're point. You're welcome? Yeah. Everybody's like, ah, like, oh, man, that guy. Hi-de-ho. Some kind of thing like that, but I haven't found the right one yet. Yeah, I don't know if you're welcome is the one. No. Because it requires somebody else saying something. Right. You want to be able to bust yours out anytime. Yeah. I'm working on it. Okay. Keep thinking. Okay. And once you have it, we can record it, add reverb and music to it if you want. (laughs) Every time you come on, boom, old Roy. Hey, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's it. I don't know. I kind of like it. It might work. I will try it. Uh, I wanted to bring one story. Got you for one segment. I'm going to bring one story to you. Okay. I also brought this up to the Annie Fry show last week, so you were getting the leavens. All right. The stuff that falls under the table, I hope you are ready to eat. <laughs> Always. Uh, Reddit user, I don't even want to bring up Reddit because it makes it sound so small. This is a person who's bringing up an issue, 
And she decided to take it to the internet and find out, am I wrong for doing this? And I thought it was actually a pretty good question. Mm -hmm. And you're in a different life phase than I am. Mm -hmm. You actually are in this life phase. I'm not there yet. Okay. And none of us on that show were there yet. So I thought, well, let's, let's just bring it to old Roy, who is there. Seeking advice from others on whether or not it's okay to ask her adult daughter to split the rent with her. So her situation, a little bit different than yours, is that she lives in a city... So rent is probably higher where she's mm-hmm. at, and she's not exactly making a ton of money. So she's you know kind of struggling to get by a little bit. Um, and she said, "Well, my daughter is 25 years old. I want her to pay half or roughly half of the rent since she moved back in with me." Now the situation here is that the daughter doesn't want to live with mom, so she's not just leeching off mom. She wants to get out on her own, and she wants to save up to put a down payment on something. But Mm -hmm. mom's saying, yeah, well, if you're going to live here, though, you probably should be paying rent. You're kind of in that season of life. How do you handle these issues? Whether they be, how would you advise her? How do you personally? You have the floor. I think it's tough because I think this is probably the exception to the rule nowadays where you have a person who, a younger person who's wanting to be independent, but yeah, I think in most cases it's it's frustrating for someone like me because there's there's that entitlement mentality that that a parent should have to have that conversation with an adult child is silly. That you're living here, chip in. Okay, okay. So that that's the old cranky old man part of me (laughs) saying just you know quit whining but this is different because it's not the kid's not there out of necessity or laziness um so i i it's it's a tough one i don't think this is a normal situation so i don't know how i think if the kid's going to be there if the parent is struggling you would hope that the kid would what about if the parent's not if the parent's doing fine, but the kid is still just kind of doesn't, you know, is is kind of taking advantage of the situation. Pay? Uh, the parent in this case sounds a little clingy maybe once. Wants to have him around? Wants Junior to stick around. And if you're going to stick around, they're, they're using that, hey, you got to chip in. I don't know. This is a tough one. You've baffled me here. Because well, that's why it's. I think it's a good discussion. Is because there there are probably a lot of people in this situation. Well, and there's and there's going to be more and more people. Older people are going to be at a point where they are going to need assistance. Yeah. When Social Security explodes or implodes or whatever's going to happen. Yeah, there. those and, darn Republicans are going to get rid of that, according to Chuck Schumer. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know. I was I was kind of probably on the tail end of it, but I was still raised where, you know, the parents take care of you, and then when they get older, you take care of them. So a lot of my peers, you know, had three-generation households, You just, and it's not about who pays what or it, – it just that's just what happens. Whoever has the resources takes care of it, and everybody is cared for. Hmm. And so that's – that's in my mind. That's the ideal. Is 
is, is you have multi-generations kind of coming together to make it happen. Right. That's, I, that is a nice ideal. I just think that we're in a time where that's not even really the goal. You know, the goal is independence. And especially at that moment, because you're describing when you're, when your kids, parents take care of the kids. But when the parents are older, the parent or the kid takes care of the care of the parent. Mm-hmm. But then there's this in between time where nobody has to take care of anybody. Right. Usually, where the kid's supposed to be out and making their impact on the world or, or struggling to get there, and maybe they need a little bit of assistance still because they're not quite kicked out of the nest. Right. But then at some point they're supposed to be. Um, but the parents still fine, you know, at that at that stage of life. So it's tricky. And here's the here's the double back question Mm -hmm. that I really am am curious about. And it it does stem from this story that the daughter who's 25, she's saying, first of all, I don't really even want to be living with my mom. It's just out of necessity. I don't have another option right now. And the more she makes me pay, the the longer it's going to be before I can get out. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the mom, at least maybe she is, but she didn't say because it's coming from her perspective that she's trying to keep the daughter there or anything. She doesn't seem like that's the goal, but she is saying, but but I'm giving you living space, therefore <laughs> you got to chip in. So I kind of get it. But here's the question. What the daughter says is, though, now that I'm paying for ha- rent, shouldn't I have rights as a renter from you? Because I want to have friends over and stuff, but there's not really enough space. And plus, she calls the mom a hoarder and says, you got too much stuff in here. I don't even have space to- to have friends over. Now, if you pay rent, does the kid have any rights in the house mm-hmm. that maybe they wouldn't otherwise? I think they would. I think that would be fair. But the whole thing could be avoided because I, I you made a good point. I think this, this sounds like a situation where they're in that in-between phase where you just need to suck it up, Mom, and let the kid go fly or fall. And live your own life and not be codependent. Be, you know, because you're, you're creating an unnecessary, complicated situation mm-hmm. that, yeah, if, if the kid's working to, to find their way out, you would think a parent who can sustain themselves comfortably would say, yeah, stay here for a couple of months, save up some money, get your down payment on an apartment and get out. Yeah, let me try to help you yeah. instead of, I think you can help me. Here. Right. <laughs> because it does seem a little bit that way. <laughs> right. And ev- that's that's why I think it's a good discussion is that <clears throat> everybody's situation is different because everybody's motivations are different. Mm-hmm. Everybody's financial situation is different. Everybody's location is different. And it is there is no across-the-board rule for this kind of thing. And I, I mean, right now... I'm at the stage where I'm like, gosh, I hope my kids stay with me for as long as possible because I think that that's fun. I'm enjoying yeah. being a dad. But at some point, I also realize <laughs> that my kids probably will want to go get out. And if they, they express that desire to me, like in this story, that they said, look, I just got out of college. I don't really have a great job or I do have a job, but it's just not I'm not making a lot. And I want to get into X, Y, Z business or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you could allow me to, for a year or two, just save, then I think by then, not only will my fan- financial situation be better, but I will have not lost money this whole time and be kind of spinning my wheels. That sounds to me like a no-brainer. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. The whole the, the motive matters a lot. Right. So, all right. Good discussion. And thanks for your time. I know you got to 
run, but I appreciate it. You're welcome. There we go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's old Roy. This is Wiggins America. You know, I've neglected to mention that the other big winner from the State of the Union, outside of Donald Trump, is actually Kamala Harris. Do you want to know why? It's because Kamala Harris, anytime, literally anytime there is a news story about her, it is always bad. There is never good news about Kamala Harris, despite the fact that they basically own the media. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But first, I'm going to play for you just Kamala's latest. You know, this came up this week. It was actually before the State of the Union. This was her speaking at some college. I tried to listen long enough to get the context, and I still don't know. So I'm going to make you listen to it. Our meeting today includes not only the work that we intend to do going forward, but working together to talk about how we can measure the success we have had thus far and continue to improve on the work we've done. For many who were at the original table, you will know that it has been built into our approach that we will devise metrics and be very clear, and I thank the university and, and, and Michelle for the work that has been happening to help us articulate the metrics by which we will then measure our success in real time not waiting for years down the line, but in real time measure our success so that we can regroup, analyze where we are, and as necessary improve our approach. Yeah, it's like 45 seconds long, and I just kept listening to it trying to get to what she was talking about measuring, and I still don't know. But the best thing possible, to reiterate, that could happen to either Donald Trump, really the Republican primary process, the Republican nominee, whoever that ends up being, is that either Joe Biden or Kamala Harris is the nominee for 2024 for Democrats because they're both just awful and for different reasons. But either way, that's the best chance that a Republican has to win. And that's then, therefore, the best thing that could happen for the country is for a good Republican, not some establishment person. I I just don't think that's going to happen, though, this year or next year but is for a good non-establishment, let's tear it all out, let's get rid of the deep state, let's get rid of the swamp, Republican to win and say, okay, time to clean house. I think we're, we're a, I think we're in phase two of that. I think phase one was Donald Trump, phase two is happening now, and phase three starts on January 20th of 2025, regardless of who that is, because I really believe it's going to be a Republican. But back to Kamala Harris real quick. The media really has tried to make her a darling and can't do it. They really want to, which leads us to today's Tale from the Dark Side. There is unseen by most an underworld, a place that is just as real, but not as brightly lit. A dark side. This is a Kamala Harris version of Tales from the Dark Side. This comes from a little rag we called the New York Times. Kamala Harris was frustrated. The text of a speech she had been given to deliver in Chicago to the nation's biggest teachers' union was just another dreary, scripted talk that said little of any consequence. As Air Force Two made its way to the Midwest over the summer, the vice president told her staff she wanted to say something more significant, more direct. 
she brandished a Rolling Stone magazine article about the backlash against Florida school officials after new legislation barring the discussion of gender identity in the classroom. It's well put. By the way, little aside here, little aside. If you want to discuss your sex and your sexuality with kids, you can't do it in Florida anymore. But apparently the vice president wants to make sure that all other states can. Okay, back on. The teachers she was about to address were on the front lines of the nation's culture wars, Harris told her staff. They were the same ones on the front lines of school shootings. Just blandly ticking through federal funding for education would not be enough. The plane was just an hour out from Chicago, but she said they needed to start over. By the time she landed, she had a more spirited version of the speech in her hand, accusing extremist so-called leaders in in the Republican Party of taking away rights and freedoms to teach kids about sex. I added that. That last part there, I added that, just so you know. If you couldn't tell. Harris's small airborne rebellion that day encapsulated the trap that she finds herself in. She has made history as the first woman, the first African-American, and the first Asian-American ever to serve as vice president. But she still has struggled to define her role much beyond that legacy. Wait, you mean she, she she hasn't done anything beyond checking the demographic boxes? Is that what you're saying, New York Times? I don't know. I, again, I'm just, here, I'm just here to read. Her staff notes that she has made strides emerging as a strong voice in the administration on abortion rights. She has positioned herself as a more visible advocate for the administration, giving a speech last week at the funeral for Tyree Nichols, the 29-year-old who was beaten by Memphis police officers. And her critics and detractors alike acknowledge that the vice presidency is intended to be a supporting role. And many of her predecessors have labored to make themselves relevant as well. Oh, except for the current president, who was vice president. And many others who have been... Regardless. That's an aside. Again, I hope that you can tell that I'm not reading from the New York Times when I say those things. This is the last paragraph of the story here that I'm going to read anyway. But the painful reality for Harris is that in private conversations over the past few months, dozens of Democrats in the White House, on Capitol Hill, and around the nation including some who helped put her on the party's 2020 ticket, said she has not risen to the challenge of proving herself as a future leader of the party, much less the country. Even some Democrats whom her own advisors referred reporters to for supportive quotes confidently or confided privately that they had lost hope in her. Did you catch that last segment, that last sentence there? They have confi- these are people who the the staff of Kamala Harris refers reporters to to get supportive quotes, and even those people are not giving supportive quotes. They're privately saying, "Yeah, she's doing a terrible job." If that's how bad it's gotten, she has no place in the future of the country, or as it says, the Democrat Party. Yet. She's kind of supposed to be the heir apparent to a guy who can barely stand and shakes hands with ghosts. But do you hear what is going on in the article? Beyond just Kamala Harris and the comments we could make about Kamala herself, are you listening to this article? The title of it is about how her allies are tired of waiting for her and that the party's turning against her. 
That's the title, the headline of the article is about how she's failing. Yet I just read to you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven paragraphs of this glowy nonsense about how she was in the middle of giving just a bland speech and she an hour before she landed, she said, No more. I will not give I will not give this bland speech. I will speak as eloquently as Ryan Wiggins does. That's another little joke there. I hope that you're picking up on my sarcasm there since I can't even get the words out. But seven paragraphs it takes to get to the point of the actual headline of the point of the story. They had to give her seven paragraphs of fluff before they took even a tiny little shot at her. This is the New York Times saying this. And the only reason they're taking any shot at her at all is apparently every single person in the Beltway in Washington, D.C. has turned on her, even to the point that people that she thinks hasn't, who she was referring reporters to, have. And this guy's acknowledging that. It's really amazing. Uh, so that's that's the tale from the dark side today. But it's, I don't know, it's it's a little bit more of a, of a representation of where journalism is than a story about Kamala Harris. Get more at 971talk.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.